The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Is Trump helping a prince get away with murder? This is Thursday, October 18th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. An avalanche of news, a record-setting deficit, a record-setting election, a bizarre murder mystery, a growing climate crisis, legal Canadian weed, and Mueller's about to report on the Russia probe. We'll get to all of it, but we'll start with your wallet. The gap between the money the U.S. takes in and the money it doles out is how we determine the federal deficit. The higher the deficit, the more you pay in interest rates. The nation's economic growth slows, and pay raises all but vanish. The Treasury Department says our national deficit is now nearly $800 trillion. That's 800 with 12 more zeros after it. The deficit grew by a whopping 17% last year. U.S. spending commonly outpaces its income, but this past year was shockingly different. A higher deficit drives up the national debt, which is the interest the U.S. pays on the money it borrows from other countries. Half of those debts are to China, Japan, and Saudi Arabia. We are beholden to China for more than a trillion dollars. The track we're on over the next 10 years will spend $7 trillion on interest payments instead of on roads, bridges, schools, and other top priorities. What jacked up the deficit? The Trumpublican tax package that did little for the middle class and a lot for corporations and the rich. Because it also meant the government was taking in a lot less money than it had been. The money kept instead by the big and the wealthy. And the effect of that selective tax cut was made worse by a $39 billion increase in military spending. But no increase in spending was as big as the increase in what the U.S. pays in interest on its $21 trillion debt. Meanwhile, under the Trump-Publican tax plan, corporations got to keep nearly $100 billion last year that would have otherwise gone to the government to help narrow that deficit. Now, the news about the deficit and the debt would also seem to be bad news for Republicans running for Senate and congressional seats in the election that's now just a couple of weeks away, since it was Republicans who boosted the deficit by $1.5 trillion with their tax package. Bad election news for Republicans unless they can turn this story around. Senate Leader Mitch McConnell says it's not the tax cut for the rich or the military spending boost that's caused this mess. It's Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. The way to solve this problem, says McConnell, is to cut these entitlement programs, meaning programs to which people are entitled, either because they've earned it or because they're unable to care for their own health. Yes, with just a couple of weeks left till Election Day, McConnell is threatening to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid to try to distract from the huge deficit increase that will stop pay raises, drive up interest rates, and with no wiggle room in the budget to deal with natural disasters, which seem to now happen more frequently. Despite past Republican preaching about the importance of keeping down the deficit and the debt, Republicans have instead thrown caution to the wind. The national deficit has risen by... 77% in Mitch McConnell's three years of Senate leadership. You can bet Democratic candidates will be talking about this deficit news over the next couple of weeks. Last week, we were asking ourselves if people would actually turn out and vote in this crucial election, now less than three weeks away. This week, we have a better idea of what to expect. 
The National Voter Registration Day is the fourth Tuesday of September every year. This year it was on the 25th. And on that day this year, nearly 800,000 people who were not registered to vote got themselves registered in one day. And that's just one of the many big voter registration drives. The organizers of National Voter Registration Day were expecting to sign up 300,000 people this year. But instead of a third of a million, they got closer to a million, probably thanks to partnering with Facebook, Twitter, and others. They'd underestimated the response by a half million people. In Vermont, officials say that this year, 92.5% of the state's residents are now registered voters. 92.5. That's 16,000 new voters just in Vermont this year, just in that tiny state. Now, obviously, being a registered voter doesn't mean a person will actually vote. But more people are prepared to vote this year with millions of new voters no one expected. And turnout for the primaries this year was more than double of the last midterm four years ago. This is not and will not be your usual midterm election. A Washington Post-ABC News poll found that people are far more eager to vote on November 6th than they were in the midterm election four years ago. That's not a hard number to beat, since that election day saw the lowest voter turnout in 50 years, giving Republicans control of the Senate and a stronger hold on the House. Still, this year's numbers are up. And up sharply. 77% of the people registered to vote say they will meet us at the polls 19 days from now, a number that's a substantial 12% higher than its counterpart from four years ago. Enthusiasm is up among all groups, but especially among women, young adults, minorities, and Democrats. 81% of Democrats plan to vote. That's up 18% from the congressional races of 2014, while Republican enthusiasm is up only 4%. And Democratic voters have donated more money to their congressional campaigns than Republicans by a $50 million margin, and they're now ready to put their mouths where their money is. The number of voting women under age 40 is up by 32%, nearly a one-third increase in women voters. Minorities are 24% more determined to vote this time. In other words, enthusiasm is strong among people who don't usually vote in these important elections for the House, some Senate seats, governorships, local offices, and ballot questions. Those ballot questions, by the way, deal with renewable energy, restrictions on the fossil fuel industry, gerrymandering, the rights of crime victims, taxes, and the legalization of recreational marijuana in places like Utah, North Dakota, Missouri and Michigan. The minimum wage is on the ballot in Arkansas and Missouri. Restricting abortion is on the ballot in Alabama, Oregon, and West Virginia. There may be important questions like these on your local ballots, all the more reason it's important that everyone vote in this election. The soul of the nation is on the ballot in congressional races this year, Senate races, gubernatorial races, and other offices. In the minds of many, this midterm is the most important one of our lifetimes for ourselves, for the country, and for the planet. What Democrats don't want is another surprise, like the one that befell them on November 8th, 2016. The 2016 presidential election was manipulated by Russia. The 2018 midterms are being manipulated too, but this time by Americans. Facebook has purged more than 800 accounts that were flooding users with political spam, clickbait. Some of the accounts had been around for years and had millions of followers, including a page that brags it's the first publication to endorse President Donald J. Trump. 
but liberal accounts were deleted too. And some had multiple accounts and whole networks of accounts, and some of them were fake to make themselves appear bigger and more popular than they actually are. Facebook, in finally addressing disinformation campaigns, foreign and domestic, says it deleted the accounts not because of their content, but because they had used inappropriate tactics to expand their followings. Facebook has been threatened with government regulation prompting its proactive purge of what it saw as disinformation campaigns. But account holders on the right and the left who've been removed from Facebook are now accusing the company of censorship. In the meantime, Americans have learned from the Russians how to use disinformation on social media to try to alter our elections. The usual obstacles to electing Democrats are back in place for this election and then some. Republican-sponsored voter ID laws remain in effect, keeping hundreds of thousands of Americans from voting as Republicans insist on preventing the voter fraud that statistically does not exist. That's been well established. Trump, believing he should have won the popular vote in 2016, claimed that millions of people had voted fraudulently. After taking office, he set up a commission of like-minded Republicans to look into this. They looked and looked for evidence to prove what they already believed. Even then, because red and blue states refused to cooperate, the commission was disbanded, but Republicans still cling to their false claim. In Republican-held Texas, the state attorney general is arresting people and accusing them of voter fraud. In the red state of North Carolina, immigration officials have subpoenaed the state's voting records to be scanned for undocumented voters. North Dakota's voter ID law was challenged by Native Americans who point out that tens of thousands of homes on reservations are rural and have no street addresses, which is now required under North Dakota law. The U.S. Supreme Court, with its Republican majority firmly in place, turned away the Native Americans refusing to hear their case. That meant North Dakota's voter ID law would remain in effect through the November election. It is the Native American vote, by the way, that gave the very red state of North Dakota a Democratic senator. And with Heidi Heitkamp's defeat, Democrats would lose a seat in the Senate and their shot at a Senate majority, paving the way for Trump to get one or two more Supreme Court justices confirmed. In other words, Native Americans in North Dakota can determine everything in this election. In Georgia, where Stacey Abrams is working to become the nation's first black female governor, nearly 80% of the voters removed from the registration are black. 53,000 voters are on hold while the state works to verify or disqualify them under Georgia's exact match voter ID law. Under that law, even a missing hyphen can get a voter suspended from the voter rolls, especially if they're black, making Stacey Abrams work even tougher. In Atlanta, a college teacher showing her students how to check online to see if they're registered discovered in class that she no longer is registered despite her having voted in every election. Now one of the 53,000 names to be reviewed by the Georgia Secretary of State, Marsha Appling Nunez, has a hyphenated last name. And one of those names is Hispanic. Georgia's voting system is controlled by Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who is Stacey Abrams' opponent in this neck-and-neck -neck race for governor. And these 53,000 suspended voter registration applications are just a drop in Mr. Kemp's bucket. 
He's removed one and a half million names from Georgia's voter rolls in the past six years, removed over 650,000 just last year while he was preparing to run for governor. Kemp is the Republican poster child for voter suppression, and he's currently in charge of an election that involves him, despite calls for him to either recuse himself or resign. The nation has a Voting Rights Act to protect the rights of minority voters, but that law was gutted five years ago by the United States Supreme Court. Now Georgia's Brian Kemp is facing multiple lawsuits by, among others, a coalition of civil rights groups over his enforcement of this exact match law. Kemp claims the 53,000 people he removed from the registration can still vote so long as they bring all the right paperwork. Voters in Georgia have responded to this. Turnout was off the charts on the first day of voting in Georgia with a two-hour wait for early voters in Cobb County with a line around the building. The same is true around the country, with turnout nearly triple its usual number. Tensions are high. When a Georgia Tech student hit record on their phone to ask Senator David Perdue about voter suppression, Perdue's answer was to snatch the phone away from the student. Perdue gave back the phone after a struggle, after the student had asked why Perdue was supporting Brian Kemp. At last check, Kemp held a nearly two-point lead over Stacey Abrams. And there are Republican efforts to keep young minority voters away from the polls. Back in Texas, an executive for one Democratic congressional candidate was arrested after delivering to the Waller County Courthouse a letter demanding the county update its voting status on students at a nearby college that has an 80% black enrollment. Waller County is otherwise 70% white. As he delivered the letter, the campaign official took a picture of the county clerk receiving the letter to prove it had been delivered. She didn't like that and called in a bailiff. The bailiff asked which political party the man represented. Democrat, he said, and they arrested him. He was released two hours later, but county officials kept his cell phone. All this went down on what would be the last day before the election for Texans to register. And just in time, the county has put thousands of students from Prairie View A&M back on the registered voter list. In California, Republican Duncan Hunter is fighting to keep his seat in Congress and fighting federal charges of using his campaign money for personal expenses. His Democratic challenger is Amar Kampa Najjar, who's of Palestinian heritage. So, desperately embattled Republican Duncan Hunter hasn't just resorted to negative ads against Kampa Najjar, he's gone full-on Islamophobic. Hunter's ad accuses his fellow American of trying to infiltrate Congress. He says Kampa Najjar's grandfather was a terrorist and behind the killing of Israeli athletes at the 1972 Olympics. The ad says Kampa Najjar changed his name to hide this alleged connection. In his ad, Hunter declares his fellow American opponent a security risk. As if the Islamophobia weren't clear enough, the Washington Post fact-checking division has given Hunter's ad four Pinocchios, which the paper says makes the ad a whopper of a lie. Amar Kampa Najjar is a Christian, not a Muslim. Kampa, by the way, is the family name of his mother, who is Hispanic. But California Republican Congressman Duncan Hunter continues to spew his lies, including that an Obama appointee in the Justice Department is to blame for his own federal indictment. The truth is, the U.S. attorney who filed those five dozen charges against Duncan Hunter is a Republican 
appointed by Donald Trump. The two young men who said they were students from a nearby college arrived at the campaign office of Democratic Congressman Tom O'Halloran in Flagstaff, Arizona, to volunteer and to donate the $39.68 they'd collected in a jar for a campaign donation. It wasn't until they filled out the forms that the two men identified themselves as members of the Northern Arizona University Communist Party. And they quickly insisted on getting receipts for their donations. The Republicans would really have something if they could prove that a Democrat had taken campaign donations from communists, especially if Republicans could get their hands on the receipts. Unfortunately for these two young men, one of the congressman's staffers recognized them from social media as members of the Arizona Republican Party. So the congressman's staffer returned the $39.68 to the men, identifying them both by their real names and the ones they'd given on their application, reminding them that fraudulent contributions are a federal crime. And the congressman's staff got all of it on video. This election, like all elections, will not be settled by either Republicans or Democrats. Like all the others, it'll be decided by the independent voters. As Bob Seska points out in his Tuesday column for the Daily Banner, it was the independent voter who gave us Trump, and it is the independent voter who has the power to taketh him away. A Reuters poll found that two-thirds of independent voters think the country is on the wrong path. And 60, that's 6-0, 60% of the independents disapprove of Trump. 45% of them strongly. 49% of them disapprove of their representative in Congress. A CNN focus group of six people who voted for Trump two years ago, all six of them say they now regret it. Voter enthusiasm overall is up. Democrats a bit more than Republicans. That Democratic edge combined with an unhappy crowd of independents spells trouble for this all-Republican government. And the independents are eager to vote, too. Earlier this year, Trump Treasury Secretary Wilbur Ross ordered the Census Bureau to add a question about the residents' citizenship status. Ross claimed it would help the government enforce the Voting Rights Act to protect the voting rights of minorities, for that matter, everyone. That would be surprising since it's the only thing the Trump administration has done to try to shore up voting rights. In fact, this administration's work to restrict voting rights, Trump claiming voter fraud and rigged elections and demanding voter ID laws nationwide, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions heaping praise on the Supreme Court decision to gut the Voting Rights Act of 1963. So what was the real reason? The Commerce Department's finally released emails that answer that question. Emails between Wilbur Ross and Kansas then-Secretary of State Chris Kobach, who believes as firmly as Trump in this non-existent voter fraud. The documents released by Commerce also reveal conversations between Ross and then-White House advisor Steve Bannon, a fierce critic of immigration. The emails revealed that the real reason for the new question is to stop serving and or ferret out undocumented people. Having a citizenship question on the census will intimidate undocumented residents into not filling out the form at all, meaning they won't be represented by senators and congressional members who are sworn to serve the residents of his or her district regardless of their citizenship status. The reason everyone gets counted, or did in the past, 
is to make sure enough money and services are in place to accommodate everyone. Not counting the undocumented could cut the number of seats in Congress representing millions of people. There would be two more red state congressional seats than there are now and two fewer Democratic seats. That and the further intimidation of immigrants appears to be the real intent of Wilbur Ross's order to add this census question about citizenship status, not to protect anyone's voting rights. The Democrats in Congress made a weird and still unexplained deal with Republicans before they all went back to their home states to campaign for themselves or others in the upcoming midterms. Even right after the bitter Brett Kavanaugh fight, Democrats agreed to confirm 15 more federal judges nominated by Trump. In return, the lawmakers would be allowed to go home and campaign. That's weird because Congress was about to break anyway for that exact purpose. In other words, the Democratic leadership in Congress, Chuck Schumer and Dianne Feinstein, gave up 15 things for a thing they were going to get anyway. Without explanation, they traded something for nothing. Those who'd helped Democrats fight the Kavanaugh nomination were further crushed by this news. Quoting a lawyer for an anti-Trump group, this period will be long remembered not just for the historic number of judges Trump's been able to confirm, but also because of how passive Democrats were in response. Trump has now appointed 29 appeals court judges, far more than any other president in the circuit court's history. And inexplicably, Democrats in Congress are letting it happen. The Kavanaugh fight, however, may not be over. A new Washington Post-ABC News survey shows that a majority of Americans think the investigation of Kavanaugh should continue, that a majority of Americans disapprove of his confirmation, and that it makes them more likely to vote Democratic in the election that is 19 days away. It doesn't matter, said Trump, because we won. Trump was allowing himself to be interviewed outside the safe harbor of Fox News, and Leslie Stahl was asking the questions on behalf of 60 Minutes at CBS. Trump said he thinks he treated Kavanaugh's first accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, with respect. Stahl followed up asking, but you seem to be saying that she lied. I'm not going to get into it, huff Trump, because we won. It doesn't matter, said Trump. We won. The transcript of the interview is practically unreadable, with Trump interrupting Stahl mid-question on almost every question, and at one point telling Stahl, I'm the president, you're not. He simply ignored some of Stahl's questions. But Trump used this forum to continue his effort to muddy the waters of the Russia investigation by insisting that China had also meddled. Trump said he'd like to revive his policy of separating children from families at the U.S.-Mexico border. He's now threatening to send American soldiers to the border if Mexico doesn't crack down on border crossings. Trump's comments on climate change after Hurricane Michael coming up. Also ahead, Bob Seska's thoughts on the election, an Arabian murder mystery that may involve Trump, and Mueller's about to wrap up a big part of his investigation after this. Thanks again for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com, no matter what you buy there. Now, lately, I've been discovering the expanding world of Amazon Prime Music. I'm addicted. And if you shop the new Amazon Business, which is free, you can manage your office supplies with the greatest of ease. I got a small commission from Amazon for that and every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thanks again. Salon.com's Bob Seska wants us to be fighting mad going into this election. 
but not literally. Right, Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Apparently, it's okay to use violent eliminationist rhetoric if you're Donald Trump or a pack of fascist incels who call themselves Proud Boys. For everyone else, especially liberal activists, petitioning our government is the act of a ruthless mob of screaming thugs. Ever since the confirmation battle over Brett Kavanaugh, the Trump Republicans have tried, successfully in many cases, to convince the rest of the public that it's exclusively the left that's engaged in violent acts against Trump supporters and other figures, including apparently Tucker Carlson, who can't eat in restaurants anymore. Aww. This isn't to suggest there aren't any leftists who've used violence to make their case. We've seen in-person protests where activists shout things at Trump administration officials and the like, and we've seen isolated cases in which a Nazi or three have been physically attacked. But as of today, not a single high-ranking Democrat has asked his or her supporters to punch, kick, or beat anyone. Not once. Nevertheless, the word from Trump and other Republican leaders is that these isolated incidents are the result of flagrant stoking of violence by Democratic congresspersons and the like. Trump himself referred to protesters as an angry mob. Everyone from Mitch McConnell on down the line has repeated such nonsense. Even a prominent never-Trumper, Ben Howe, excoriated Democratic leadership for using language like fight for your lives and war on Republicans, and therefore allegedly inciting violent incidents like a pair in which one Republican candidate was punched in the shoulder and another sustained a concussion after being punched in the head. While these attacks are horrible and wrong, I don't hear any serious voices on the left calling for literal violence. The closest example, I suppose, was when Maxine Waters told Democrats to push back on Trump officials. Other than that, it just doesn't exist, despite the aforementioned punching. What's been completely lost is the Republicans' collapse on their fainting couches over tough rhetoric from an 80-year-old Waters is precisely how and why this trend toward physical confrontations began. To examine incivility in a 2018 vacuum without looking at how we got here is nearsighted. It's more gaslighting is what it is. We also need to draw a distinction between rank-and-file citizens on the ground and well-known political leaders, including the president himself. Members of Congress and the president should always be held to a higher standard than your average street activists. The price of leadership is exercising the restraint commensurate with making decisions that impact 320 million Americans, not to mention the rest of the world. This requires a grounded temperament, especially knowing we have 1,500 nukes ready to launch on the president's orders or through a declaration of war by Congress. So what about these leaders in their violent screeching? In the modern context, I tend to trace the use of eliminationist rhetoric to the campaign ads that started to pop up in the early Obama years. You probably remember them. There's an entire series of political ads in which Republicans literally shoot the laws they don't like. Everyone from Rand Paul on down to Ted Cruz. These are American leaders representing American political parties with advertisements airing on American television networks and on American computer browsers. Some of these bastards never rose to elected office, but the winners keep being reelected because they're enthusiastically willing to exploit the darkest instincts of their voters in part by suggesting that it's patriotic to shoot the political ideas being proposed by the other side. Even after the near-fatal shootings of two members of Congress, this is what we're being conditioned to accept, that there's no problem that can't be solved by pulling out a semi- or fully-automatic weapon and ejaculating bullets into whatever's bugging us. 
I'm also old enough to remember G. Gordon Liddy on his former radio show instructing his listeners to shoot ATF agents in the head due to their Kevlar vests. I also remember seeing shooting targets with Democratic faces on them. No wonder, given how Republican leadership comports itself. Speaking of which, there's also Donald Trump, of course. Trump has a lengthy record of not ambiguous metaphors and off-the-shelf political rhetoric, the war on whatever, but outright violent threats and encouragement of the same. Fluffing his red hats with talk like this is what he does best. Quote, knock the crap out of them. Maybe he should have been roughed up. I'll beat the crap out of you. I'd like to punch him in the face. Part of the problem is nobody wants to hurt each other. The audience hit back, and that's what we need a little bit more of. And try not to hurt them. If you do, I'll defend you in court, so don't worry about it. That's not fake news. It's all on video. Trump isn't toying around with vague, semi-tough political tropes. He's flagrantly telling his people to literally accost protesters, which they did on countless occasions. This is what the Republicans do. They start shit, then they stand back and play this ludicrous who-me routine while pointing accusatory fingers at the rest of us. Don't let anyone tell you this is a Democratic problem. This began with Trump and his predecessors, and liberal activists are done being played as suckers with kick-me signs on our backs. So we're pushing back, as Maxine Waters said. Some are getting the wrong idea and playing on the Red Hat's level. Don't. First, they're better at it. Second, we have facts, reality, and a fighting spirit, not to mention all of the most creative and funniest people in the nation on our side. So let's use all that. Meanwhile, feel free to kick Trump's ass with your voices and especially with your votes. There's 20 days to go. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with him again on Tuesday. Donald Trump has bragged to his supporters and on video about the money he makes from Saudi Arabia, which amounts to hundreds of millions of dollars. Saudi Arabia was the first foreign country Trump visited after taking office instead of the customary first trip to one of our more trusted allies. This week, Trump has towed the Saudi line on the suspected murder of a U.S. resident, a journalist working for a major American newspaper. Trump echoed the Saudi claim that the murder in its consulate in Turkey was likely committed by rogue actors, even as we learned that four suspects are tied to the Saudi military and intelligence communities and to its crown prince. Fifteen Saudis, including the country's top forensic autopsy expert, traveling with a bone saw, are suspected of killing Jamal Khashoggi in that Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, and dismembering and disposing his body. The 15 men flew into Turkey in the middle of the night and left that afternoon. They made up this alleged team of assassins. The Saudis denied knowledge of Khashoggi's whereabouts for two weeks before saying they'd investigate his disappearance. As much as he loved his home country, Khashoggi criticized the crown prince in his writings. It suspected the Saudis lured Khashoggi to their consulate, claiming he needed to sign some papers prior to his pending wedding. Khashoggi may have known the risk, and yet, on a promise he would not be harmed, he took that risk and flew to Istanbul. And U.S. intelligence, meaning also perhaps the U.S. president, apparently knew about this assassination plot in advance. 
our intelligence intercepted discussions of the plan, knowing the Saudis have wanted to get their hands on Khashoggi since the prince first took control of that country. And they knew the plan was to lure Khashoggi into a trap and kill him to silence Khashoggi's criticism of the prince in Khashoggi's Washington Post columns. Did the Trump administration or U.S. intelligence decide not to warn Khashoggi despite U.S. policy to do so? Trump, meanwhile, defends the Arab country that's been such a good real estate customer while the Saudis parrot Trump's defenses. The last column Khashoggi wrote for the Washington Post has just been published. It's about the need for a free press. But his biggest story was about his own murder. Trump has continued to repeat the claims of the Saudi prince and has also passed along the prince's promise to investigate quickly as if it were a promise to be trusted. The Saudi government waited two weeks to start its investigation or to allow others to investigate while it denied any knowledge of what has now been verified. Playing to his base, Trump took it a step further, comparing the Saudis to conservative hero Brett Kavanaugh. For all Kavanaugh may or may not be, he's nothing like the Saudi prince. But Trump told the Associated Press, here we go again with your guilty until proven innocent. Trump supporting Senator Lindsey Graham parts ways with Trump on this, and Graham's also a longtime supporter of the Saudis. Now, Graham says he feels used and abused. He had this guy murdered, says Graham, adding, I'm not going back to Saudi Arabia as long as this guy's in charge. Saying the Saudi king should take the crown away from the prince. Instead, the Trump administration is working, reportedly, with the Saudi government to come up with a, quote, mutually agreeable explanation for Khashoggi's murder. Republican Senator Marco Rubio wants Trump's Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin not to go to a scheduled investment conference in Saudi Arabia, quote, until we know exactly what's happened. Today, U.S. intelligence says it's increasingly convinced that Khashoggi's killing was ordered by Trump's friend, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Trump sent Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to Saudi Arabia to pose for smiling pictures and to get an assurance from the prince that he knew nothing about this. Also to pick up a long-promised check for $100 million to help the U.S. effort in Syria. Trump repeats the prince's denials and alternate theories in spite of audio recordings of the murder made by Khashoggi himself and transmitted to his phone, which was outside the embassy at the time. The prince, known as MBS, short for Mohammed bin Salman, also has close ties with Trump's son-in-law and advisor, Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner's net worth these days is nearly $325 million. That's five times what Jared was worth 10 years ago. His greater accomplishment, however, might be having avoided paying federal income tax on the vast majority of these dollars. Kushner claimed millions of dollars in business losses through depreciation in his real estate holdings. In truth, real estate values almost always increase, not decrease or depreciate. So these are losses that exist only on paper. They are not losses suffered by Kushner's company. In 2015, Kushner claimed well over $8 million in losses and took home nearly a $2 million salary while paying almost no federal income taxes, according to documents reviewed by reporters at the New York Times. Quoting a lawyer who wishes he'd chosen real estate investor as a career instead, it's fantastic. You get tax deductions for things you don't pay for. 
Lawyers for the Trump campaign are now arguing in court on behalf of WikiLeaks, the organization that publishes government secrets and, in 2016, Hillary Clinton's emails. The Trump campaign and WikiLeaks are both being sued by email hacking victims, including Clinton donors and officials of the Democratic National Committee. In legal papers filed with the court, Trump campaign lawyers argue that WikiLeaks has the right to publish stolen data if WikiLeaks isn't the thief. They argue that WikiLeaks should be treated the same as Facebook. In addition to this civil suit, all of this has also been of keen interest to the Mueller investigation. Trump's 2020 re-election campaign, meanwhile, has now raised over $100 million ahead of the 2018 midterms. In 2016, a highly respected computer scientist asked himself, why the hell is a Russian bank communicating with a server that belongs to the Trump organization? And at such a rate. He and other prominent computer scientists spotted two surveys trying to locate a Trump organization server. They pinged it, but it never responded. One of the servers reaching out to Trump Tower belongs to a healthcare company in Grand Rapids, Michigan, a company that's owned by the family of Trump Education Secretary Betsy DeVos and her brother Eric Prince, who's a target of the Mueller investigation. The other server pinging Trump Tower belonged to a Russian bank, Alpha Bank, one of the biggest banks in Russia. And it was that Russian server hitting up the Trump server dozens of times every day. After a New York Times article about the Trump campaign connections to Russians in late September of 2016, the Trump server suddenly shut down and vanished from the Internet. This prominent computer scientist, a mostly Republican voter, says the FBI has not spoken with him because he believes it already knows what he knew back then. And quoting the scientist, I hope Mueller has all of it. It seems ridiculous that I'd have to do it when everyone says there's no collusion, Trump said. But I'll do what is necessary to get it over with. Trump was addressing his supporters on Fox News about the news he'd be answering a list of questions from special counsel Robert Mueller. To get it over with... And to do so to the best of their ability, members of the Mueller team have submitted written questions to Trump for him to answer with the guidance of his attorneys in writing. This could be the first round in a series of printed word Q&As. The Trump team is still working on Mueller's questions, which it insisted must avoid certain subjects, so the questions are limited. Trump was certain to commit perjury in a face-to-face -face interview, and his lawyers continue to try to avoid that. Trump lied when he told Fox News, everyone says there's no collusion. Everyone does not say that. Very few people say that. The Mueller team is still pushing for that in-person interview, but will take what it can get in the meantime now that the talks about a face-to-face -face have dragged on for months and months. And although the Russia probe is expected to continue, Mueller appears to be trying to wrap up the part that involves the president. Mueller is now expected to present his findings right after the midterms to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who will then be under pressure to release the results to Congress, which would quickly release it to the public under Democratic control of the House. Rosenstein's been pressing Mueller to either indict some more folks or wrap up the Russia probe as it pertains to the Trump campaign and as he looks into whether Trump obstructed justice. But Rosenstein may not be able to hand Mueller's report to Congress if he gets fired, which could happen if his boss, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, gets fired, which Trump says he will decide after the midterms, which is when Mueller's expected to wrap up his report.
Justice Department rules prevent Mueller from releasing anything in the 60 days prior to an election. And just because Mueller's on deadline to issue a report doesn't mean the investigation stops. Mueller's team of prosecutors will pursue other players and try to answer any remaining questions even after the issuance of this first report. Presumably, Mueller's team can issue more reports later, and there's no sign the Mueller team is anywhere near the finish line. This is not unusual. It took Ken Starr four years to nail Bill Clinton. It took two years to nail Scooter Libby. The Russia probe is still less than 18 months long. The flipping of Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, however, has reportedly done a lot to speed up Mueller's work. And the special prosecutor's been getting other good help. Trump's former fixer Michael Cohen and his former deputy campaign chair Rick Gates are helping Mueller a lot. Gates has been so helpful to the Mueller team, federal prosecutors have lifted his curfew and allowed him to slip out of that GPS monitoring ankle bracelet. Trump's campaign manager remains behind bars, but Trump's deputy campaign manager can now unbuckle his seatbelt and move freely about the cabin. Because Rick Gates is helping. A lot. Also very, very helpful is Trump's former personal lawyer and fix-it man, Michael Cohen. Cohen has not only been forthcoming with the Russia investigators, but with other federal prosecutors, as well as with prosecutors from New York State and New York City who are investigating Trump's business and his faux charity, the Trump Foundation. Michael Cohen has spent 50 hours, 50 hours, talking to investigators and prosecutors, and he's working without a net. Cohen is volunteering everything he knows pertinent to the cases against himself and Donald Trump without a plea deal of any kind. Clearly, Michael Cohen hopes his cooperation will mean a lighter sentence, and he knows an awful lot about Trump's personal life and finances and even a bit about Trump's presidency. And by doing this voluntarily, Cohen doesn't have to reveal every detail of his life as he would have to with a plea deal. Cohen says he regrets what he has done for Donald Trump. And if it helps, Michael Cohen over the weekend changed his voter registration to Democrat and urged everyone to get out and vote. Former FBI Director James Comey, Republican throughout his adult life, has just donated the maximum amount of money allowed by law to a Democratic congressional candidate in Virginia. Over the past six months, Senator Elizabeth Warren has been running a war room to get Democrats elected across the country on November 6th. That organization would come in handy in a bid for the White House. According to the Washington Post, Warren's war room is active in all 50 states, tied to more than 150 campaigns, not to mention the fundraising she's done and appearances and speeches she's made to help those candidates. Warren's war room has staffers in all four of the early primary states and in the big money states of Florida, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Warren says she'll take a hard look at making herself a presidential primary candidate right after these midterms. That's code for... The start of the 2020 presidential campaign is now just weeks away. For the record, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker is running a similar, albeit smaller, organization, as is California Senator Kamala Harris, both likely Democratic presidential primary candidates. But despite all of Warren's preparation, she may have just blown it all. While control of Congress may rest in the hands of Native Americans in North Dakota, the Pocahontas debate continued distracting from the real issues. 
Pocahontas was the teenage daughter of a Native American tribal chief who ultimately left her tribe to live among settlers in what had become Jamestown, Virginia, only to die when she was about 20 or 21. Her story's been romanticized when we actually know very little about her. Pocahontas is the stuff of legend. Trump did not mean it as a compliment when he called Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas. Trump was mocking Warren as he mocked so many people, displaying skeptical sarcasm for her claim to be at least a little bit Native American. It was red meat for Trump and his angry mob of supporters that Warren might have gotten something she didn't deserve and all because she was dishonest. It advances the conservative argument that affirmative action is bad. Warren tried to argue that she was not making this up, that she did not use or try to use her heritage to advance any aspect of her career. 132nd Native American, that's what her Grammy told her, she said. I will give you a million dollars to your favorite charity paid for by Trump if you take the test and it shows you're an Indian, he told one of his locker-up rallies earlier this year. The derisive nickname caught on despite Warren's efforts to tamp down this unfounded racist attack. What people find offensive, said White House spokeswoman Sarah Sanders, is Senator Warren lying about her heritage to advance her career. This week, Senator Warren made public a DNA test that suggests she does have a distant Native American ancestor. The report concludes there is strong evidence Warren's family tree includes a Native American as recently as six generations ago. She's somewhere between 164th and 1,000th Native American. Will Trump pay off his million-dollar bet? Of course not. I didn't say that, said Trump on Monday, despite the audio we have from July of him saying exactly that. Warren responded on Twitter, having some memory problems, Donald Trump? Should we call for a doctor? Who cares, asked Trump when reporters told him about the DNA results. Kellyanne Conway says the president shouldn't have to pay off the bet since she says Warren's DNA test was junk science. I'll only do it if I can test her personally, Trump told reporters, adding it would, quote, not be something I would enjoy doing either, racking up another ugly sexist remark or two. Quoting Warren's tweeted response, please send the check to the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, a nonprofit working to protect Native women from violence. I hope she's running for president, said Trump, because I think she'd be very easy. She'd destroy our country. She'd make our country into Venezuela. He went on. With that being said, I don't want to say bad things about her, because I hope she'd be one of the people who'd get through the process. But of course, Trump had already said enough bad things. Warren's attempt at defending herself against Trump's racist claims, however, did her more harm than good, leaving her as stained as Donald Trump. Trump and Warren have now both been condemned by the Cherokee Nation and other groups for using a question of Native American heritage for political gain. And they say Trump and Warren should each give a million bucks to the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. Still, Trump's Pocahontas attacks on Liz Warren appear to be a theme of Trump's, of his administrations, and of the Republican lawmakers who are in lockstep with Trump. Trump, who declared good people on both sides in the Charlottesville clash and called Mexicans rapists, told his congregation in Ohio last week that slavery supporting General Robert E. Lee was a great general. In that same appearance, he called on black Americans to honor Republicans with their votes. Trump sat mostly patiently in the Oval Office last week while Kanye West prattled on about a number of things, including his concern about the pitfalls of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. 
Trump called the rapper's comments pretty amazing. Indeed. And that is why Trump has asked black voters to, quote, honor us by voting Republican because he had his black meeting with Kanye West. Get away from the Democrats, he told them during his rile em up rally in Warren County, Ohio. Racist attitudes now run rampant in the Trump government. We learned this past week that acting EPA Director Andrew Wheeler liked a post showing President Obama and his wife looking fondly at a banana. Trump's chief White House advisor hosted a white nationalist publisher over the summer. A White House speechwriter had to resign in August over his participation in a conference of white nationalists. A Homeland Security advisor quit that same month over his emails with white nationalists using Nazi terminology, while another Homeland Security advisor called African Americans lazy and promiscuous. There was the counterterrorism advisor who wore a medal from a nationalist organization with Nazi ties, the Energy Department officials who called Obama a Kenyan and his mother a whore on social media. Most of these good people have been fired only because a reporter started asking questions, reporters from the Washington Post, CNN, and more. As bananas fall not far from the tree, the tree, Donald Trump, remains standing. And his insults against the mentally ill, against women, and against minorities continue as we play whack-a-mole with the racists within his administration. The attitudes of Trump and his supporters still dictate our border and immigration policies. And with that, the White House is actively considering a plan to again separate children from their parents at the border. That plan, like in the failed zero-tolerance policy that preceded it, is to discourage immigration altogether by making it not just tough, but cruel. Trump doesn't want a repeat of his first go at this, but he is reportedly frustrated about not getting his great border wall and about not even having enough border security for his liking with family immigrations now up to a record level. Trump's attempts to stop them have failed, with September setting an all-time record for influx up 80% from July. Trump's efforts are failing, and so he's cracking down. Under part of the new plan, the family gets 20 days together, and then they can either all leave together or the parents can return to their home country and leave their kids here in U.S. government custody in one of our tent camps. The Trump administration ripped more than 2,500 children from their families in six weeks this past summer. The program for reuniting these snatched kids with their families remains in chaos. One of the latest examples, a four-year-old girl put on a plane to Guatemala this week to reunite her with her dad. He was told about her return 30 minutes before her arrival. He lives eight hours from the airport. Volunteers, not the U.S. government, are still working feverishly to track down deported parents so they can be reunited with their children. And while Trump still pines for his great wall, working together, authorities in the U.S. and Mexico have discovered a way around the wall was already under construction. It's a tunnel set up by drug smugglers, complete with a rail car track and lighting and ventilation that are solar powered. The tunnel was first discovered by Mexican police 200 feet south of the border in Baja, California. You can tunnel under a wall. Trump once wished for a see-through wall so Americans could avoid being hit on the head by the bales of drugs being thrown over the top by drug smugglers. Trump's trade war is also failing. 
China's trade surplus grew at a record high last month, despite Trump's claim his trade war would turn things around, that trade wars are easy to win. Quoting one economist, the exact opposite of what the Trump administration had been planning. Not only that, combined with the Fed raising interest rates, Trump's trade war is part of the reason the Dow lost over 800 points last Wednesday and then another 550 points the next day, sending 401k investors into ulcer territory. The market has since recovered most of your losses. But the president, who's bragged about soaring stock market prices, may be learning that the market may not be the best way for a president to measure their progress. And higher prices for imported merchandise are headed this way. Also, boy eaten by bird. Why you should eat more beans, Canadian weed, and what is wrong with people. In the third and final segment, up next. It's crazy. Even though we know how important it is to have life insurance, a third of us still don't have it, mainly because it's complicated and boring. How do you shop for the best deal or the best policy for you? Where do you start? Who do you trust? Do you do your own research? That sounds risky and still boring, unless unless you go to policygenius.com. Even if you don't know jack about insurance, policygenius.com guides you to the policy that's right for you and does it in like two minutes. PolicyGenius.com does the work for you by comparing quotes from all the top companies. You get peace of mind knowing that over 4 million other people have used PolicyGenius, not just for life insurance, but also home, auto, disability, and more. Stop putting off having the life insurance you know you need. Take two minutes right now to make the right decision for you and your family. PolicyGenius.com, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. The people of North Carolina now have something big in common with the people of Puerto Rico, being neglected by the current president. North Carolina officials asked the Trump administration for nearly a billion dollars to recover from hurricane damage. The administration has instead offered them six million. That's less than one percent of the money North Carolina says it needs to recover from that devastating hurricane. Trump has said no to 99% of the money that North Carolina's requested after it endured nearly $5 billion in damages. North Carolina was asking the nation to cover one-fifth of that cost, and Trump's White House has essentially told North Carolina to drop dead. The state's governor wrote Trump to say he was in shock and disappointment. As the governors of both Puerto Rico and North Carolina can tell you now, you will get no help from Trump as the weather gets more deadly. This will come as depressing news to the victims of the deadly and devastating floods now in central Texas and to the Florida victims of Hurricane Michael. A week after that deadly storm, thousands of people in northern Florida are still without electricity and thousands of them will be without it or clean running water for perhaps a couple of months. The rest of the country can expect higher prices on cotton products and pecans as well as other southern agricultural crops. Once the wind and the rain died down, Trump allowed an interview by 60 Minutes correspondent and veteran reporter Leslie Stahl. He told her he no longer believes that climate change is a hoax. I think something's happening, something's changing, said Trump, adding, and it'll change back. It made clear that Trump still does not believe in man-made climate change, arguing that the change is part of a natural cycle and that, quote, it'll change back. 
and he's opposed to spending the trillions of dollars he says it would cost to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Accord. As for the science, quoting Trump, you'd have to show me the scientists because they have a very big political agenda. Effectively telling his base science bad while actually telling them it'll change back. So how's the rest of the world doing when it comes to the goals set by the Paris Climate Accord? Not so well. Realizing that all nations are not part of the agreement, the vast majority of the world's countries, including the U.S. and Canada, fall into the insufficient, highly insufficient, or critically insufficient categories. The U.S. shares dirtiest nation status with Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Ukraine. Canada avoided the critical rating and landed highly insufficient instead, along with China, Japan, South Africa, and a host of South American countries. Mexico scored better, sharing its insufficient rating with the EU, Australia, New Zealand, Norway, Switzerland, and the United Arab Emirates. Costa Rica, Ethiopia, India, and the Philippines are among the countries that hit the Paris Accords two-degree goal. But only two countries hit the new goal of keeping global warming to under one and a half degrees. The winners are the Gambia and Morocco. We still have a lot of work to do. And TikTok. What can individuals do to slow and stop our march to disaster? As hard as it is to hear, our steaks need to be rare. Not cooked rare. We need to eat them rarely, as in just on very special occasions. Scientists say we need to drastically cut back on our intake of beef and other red meats to make any real progress against global warming. They say we need to reduce our beef consumption by 90% and, wait for it, eat more beans, five times more beans. Rainforests continue to be flattened into grazing land for cattle to feed the world's hunger for hamburgers. If you want to know the one thing people can do to help, scientists say it's eat less meat. And while the world now has a lot more cows, other animals are dying off and becoming extinct. A new report says humans are now driving mammals to extinction at rates that are much faster than evolution. The Earth's last mass extinction was 201 million years ago, caused by natural disaster, not man. The scientists say this means we're expecting to see so many extinctions over the next 50 years that it would take 3 to 5 million years just to return it to today's numbers and 5 to 7 years to put it back where it was since the spread of humanity. Before the spread of humanity, if they had newspapers 115,000 years ago, the headline might have read, Boy Eaten by Bird. Anthropologists at Washington University in St. Louis have confirmed that the recently found bones of a boy about six years old show signs of being digested by a bird, a very large bird, naturally, 115,000 years ago. These days, children are dying from a very preventable thing, the flu. The very first child death of the season was that of an otherwise healthy little girl whose parents didn't get her vaccinated. Of the 183 children who died from last year's flu, roughly 80% of them had not been vaccinated. Parents say their main reason 
is the belief the flu shot can give a person the flu. That was true years and years ago, but not recently, since only dead virus is used now to boost your immune system, not a live virus. Anti-vaccination websites argue that people have died from the flu shot, which is misleading. Those who did die in the past had egg allergies, and the vaccines were being grown in egg protein. They died of an allergic reaction, not from the flu vaccine. Today's vaccine has no egg, no egg, and no live virus. These days, nobody dies or even gets the flu from the flu shot. Spread the word, not the flu. More than one in four parents incorrectly believes the flu vaccine causes autism, and nearly a third of parents think the flu shot is some kind of government conspiracy. The number of kids not getting all their kid shots has quadrupled in the past 16 years for many of the same reasons you just heard about the flu shot. Good news for the kids, the flu-fighting nasal spray is back this year, stronger and more effective than the first version, and still no needles. That polio-like illness, acute flaccid myelitis, has now spread to 22 of our 50 states. There are now at least 62 confirmed cases and more than twice that many suspected cases. It's striking the respiratory systems of four- and five-year-olds. So far, none have died, while health officials scramble to deal with this outbreak. Doctors recommend a lot of hand-washing, avoiding insect repellent on the kids, and staying up to date on their childhood vaccinations. The CDC is out with a new salmonella warning. It says a drug-resistant strain of the bacteria in raw chicken has sickened nearly 100 people in 29 states, and they do not yet know the source of the contamination. Gun violence. There wasn't any over the weekend in New York. The city that never sleeps went the entire weekend without anyone getting shot. For the first time in 25 years, Canada is now the first major world economy to legalize recreational marijuana, and it's likely to change a lot about Canada. There will be major economic effects, but also social and cultural changes. Canada on Wednesday was reminiscent of that in the U.S., at the end of alcohol prohibition more than 80 years ago. As a 29-year-old male told the New York Times, Canada is once again a progressive global leader. We have gay rights, feminism, abortion rights, and now we can smoke pot without worrying police are going to arrest us. Although Canadians cannot use in public and they must be adults, they are allowed to possess, carry, and share with others enough weed to roll about five dozen old-school joints. They're also now allowed to grow up to four marijuana plants per household in some provinces. The legalization of edibles is still a year away. Canada's medical marijuana law doesn't change. The Canadian government is also pardoning most of those convicted for what is now legal. Last year, before legalization, about 5 million Canadians spent nearly $6 billion on marijuana. The legal kind is less expensive. Nice guys finish last when it comes to money. A new study finds that people who are truly nice are at a higher risk for bankruptcy and other financial crises. The study, in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, concludes they just don't value money as much as other people do. The study shows that people who are nice have lower credit scores and earn less money. The study found correlation, but not a cause and effect. Donald Trump has prevailed so far in the lawsuit 
filed against him by Stephanie Clifford, better known as Stormy Daniels. Daniels' lawyer, Michael Avenatti, says the federal judge's decision will be appealed. Daniels was suing Trump for defaming her character by effectively calling her a liar after she claimed she'd had a one-night stand with Trump and that she had been threatened not to talk about it. We now know that despite Trump's denials, he paid the hush money to keep her quiet. Still, a federal judge has thrown out Daniels' case, and for now, Donald Trump has prevailed over Stormy and Michael Avenatti. And Trump did it with another sexist insult, calling Ms. Daniels horse face. A Ryan Gosling movie about the first man on the moon wasn't the hit it was expected to be in its opening weekend. We'll orbit back to that. A comic book hero was North America's first choice this week, with Venom pulling in another $36 million. A Star is Born sold $28 million in tickets in its second week for second place. Ryan Gosling's first man opened in third place, with a comparatively anemic $16 million. Universal spent nearly as much to promote First Man as Universal spent making the movie. And Universal needs to more than triple its total ticket sales so far to even cover the expenses. First Man's gotten mediocre reviews from audiences, but rave reviews from critics. So naturally, it's got Oscar buzz. A similar but worse fate for Bad Times at the El Royale with Jeff Bridges, John Hamm, and Dakota Johnson. For previews, tickets, and showtimes near you, please go through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. MGM has teamed up with Walmart. MGM's hopping on the Voodoo bandwagon. That's V-U-D-U. MGM will now make shows for Voodoo, including a remake of the 1980s comedy Mr. Mom. Walmart hopes to pick up more shows from other companies for its Voodoo streaming service. Voodoo started when Netflix was a much smaller operation. Netflix grew. Voodoo did not. Walmart's hoping this time will be different, although it won't be able to reach as many people as Amazon Prime Video which comes as a perk to Amazon Prime membership in case you've been skipping your podcast commercials. Our Passings and Passages segment this week has to begin with Sears, teetering on extinction after a successful run that began shortly after the Civil War when Sears sold railroad watches. Over the years, Sears has sold houses and cars and tombstones and, when it was legal, cocaine and opium. Sears has everything was the slogan. It was Amazon before the Internet. It's where America bought its tires and appliances, furniture and clothing, and those great craftsman tools. Sears began to die when it lost its focus and sold off assets to acquire spin-off businesses, including Allstate Insurance and Coldwell Banker Realty, Prodigy Internet, Discover Cards, and then its merger with Kmart. And while Sears wasn't paying attention, the Internet arrived. Oh, Sears had a website, but never made any headway with it, never did anything with it. Sears didn't change, even as the times did. Quoting a Lyft driver, I just don't understand the point of Sears. After 125 years, Sears has now filed for bankruptcy and announced the closing of another 142 stores. We also learned this week of the passing of Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. He died at home in Seattle from complications with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at age 65. Allen was a billionaire investor and entrepreneur, but he was also a great philanthropist. 
Allen not only co-founded Microsoft with Bill Gates in 1975, it was Allen who came up with the name Microsoft, short for Software for Small Computers. Also found dead this week, a politician from Reality TV. This may be the second most bizarre story of the week. Republican Nevada State Assembly candidate and whorehouse owner Dennis Hoff was found dead at one of his establishments. The sheriff says Hoff died in his sleep at the Love Ranch in Crystal, Nevada. The sheriff says there's no reason to suspect foul play, but that there would be an autopsy. Hoff's body was found by a friend, a former porn star known as the Hedgehog, Ron Jeremy. Jeremy says he was waking Dennis because they had a meeting in Pahrump. The night before, Dennis Hoff and Ron Jeremy were appearing with disgraced former Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who got pardoned by Trump last year. Hoff had said he shared Trump's political views. Hoff, who started out in bicycle rentals and gas stations, went on to become the nation's most famous pimp with a reality show on HBO called Cat House. We do not yet know if he is survived by any of his family members. Amy Winehouse is going on a worldwide tour next year as a hologram. Previous hologram tours have featured Roy Orbison, Maria Callas, Billie Holiday, and Tupac Shakur. Upcoming soon, a tour by the late Frank Zappo. And this passage to note... Mr. Carol Spinney is leaving his job of the past 50 years as the voice and co-puppeteer of Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch on Sesame Street. For 50 years, Spinney's been speaking two octaves higher as the big yellow bird that's as much of a trademark as it is beloved. He had met Jim Henson at a puppet festival in 1962, and Henson had told him about the bird and the grouch who would live in a trash can. As Carol Spinney got older, Big Bird got younger, transformed from a doofus adult to a sweet, eager-to-learn six-year-old. Quoting Spinney, who's now retiring at 84, Big Bird helped me find my purpose. By the way, the woman who bought the Banksy painting for nearly $1.5 million only to watch it shred its lower half before her eyes has decided to keep the painting. The artist never wanted the acrylic painting to be auctioned, so he built a frame for it with a remote-controlled shredder and set it off as soon as the auction gavel was whacked. As predicted here, the painting's value is already increasing, with its tails dangling soon in London galleries this month. It is now a new kind of art and is expected to keep increasing in value. Oh, and more Banksy works are going up for auction next month. The value of those pieces is also increasing as the world wonders if the next one will shred itself or explode. Banksy has now pulled off pranks at the Louvre, the British Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, and the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum. So stay tuned. Police in the northern California town of Heldsburg are ready to bring the hammer down on whoever stole the town's gigantic hammer. It's a sculpture of a ball-peen hammer with a wooden handle that's 20 feet long and weighs 1,000 pounds. And somebody's stolen it. More like eight people, probably, which is what police estimate it would take to lift the thing or with a winch into a flatbed truck. Anyway, it wasn't an easy theft. And you know how people are about borrowing tools. City officials in lovely Savannah, Georgia, were fighting mad when they discovered someone had put googly eyes on the statue of a Revolutionary War hero, Nathaniel Green, who happens to be buried in the town square. 
Not the Civil War, mind you, but the war for independence from Britain, the Revolutionary War. Still, city officials may have overreacted. The googly eyes did no damage to the statue whatsoever. They were stick-on. They, they peeled right off, which is all the city needed to do in the first place instead of posting a photo online that went viral along with a threat to arrest the perpetrator. If we didn't do anything, said a police spokesman, this thing could get out of hand. Indeed, as one Facebooker put it, you realize you just dared your entire city to googly eyes all your monuments, right? Adding, just pick off the eyes and move on. Some things are better off in museums, and better still if the museum is far, far away. In Switzerland, they're about to open the Disgusting Food Museum. Many of these things smell worse than they sound or look. Fermented shark meat, bull penis, bird's nest soup, ant larvae, roasted guinea pig, and maggot cheese. The museum, set to open October 29th, was founded by the same man who brought Sweden its Museum of Failure. Sam Crum's tomato plant isn't disgusting. It's amazing. Mr. Crum of Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, has a tomato plant that has grown in just five months to a height of 22 feet. It's not a record setter. The tallest tomato plant on record grew to 65 feet in England. Still, 22 feet is amazing for a tomato plant. Crumb says it must be the fertilizer that he mixed up himself and now regrets. It just grew and grew and grew, he says, adding, my kids are just sick of eating tomatoes. Walnuts is how a Pakistani man got into the Guinness Book of World Records. 32-year-old Mohammad Rashid Nassim cracked 243 walnuts with his head in one minute. That's using your head? Halloween is coming, and in the Florida Keys, scuba divers competed this week in the annual underwater pumpkin carving contest. Knives and air hoses, what could possibly go wrong? The pumpkins were to be carved on the white sand 30 feet below the surface of the water at the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. The divers, who'd drawn the patterns in advance, descended with their pumpkins through that clear water to start cutting. This is not easy, since the darn pumpkins want to float. 14- and 16-year-old brothers were the first to surface with their finished works featuring a half-moon and a dolphin. As the winners, they get a free trip to a dive resort. Grapes are the featured item in the highway spill of the week. In Flag City, California, Friday, a semi overturned and spilled its load of grape pulp, which is used for making jams and jellies, juices, and more. The driver got only minor injuries. He's fine. All those mashed grapes became a traffic jam from our what is wrong with people department in hackensack new jersey someone gassing up their car pulled away from the pump while gasoline was still being pumped the driver must have heard the sound as the nozzle was yanked out of the car it isn't clear if the driver knows that the pump on their departure burst into flames what is wrong with people and finally with all we have been through, the old joke about cops and donuts feels less funny these days. This story is different, mostly. Outside of Krispy Kreme in Lake City, Florida, someone stole the Krispy Kreme truck. The police were all over this. But it was the Clearwater police who found the truck 300 miles from where the official driver had parked it. Police have not found the thief. But with Krispy Kreme's grateful permission... 
they gave the donuts to a group that feeds the homeless. Of course, they did eat some of the donuts themselves, so apparently that joke's not dead after all. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.